0: Hello, 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 everybody! Welcome to the Engineering Success Podcast, Episode Thirty Seven. I am your host, Daniel Dollinger. How you guys doing this week? I hope you're doing all right. I hope you use that time to think about how you're doing this week. I hope that what you thought was good. Hope life is treating you guys well. Life is treating me well. I, I was on that week on week on week on every single week podcast episode cadence earlier. But I'll be honest, I took a vacation last weekend, like I said I would, so we skipped an episode last week, but you know, we're still in a pretty good cadence here. I'm pretty proud of the cadence we're at, we're publishing regularly, uh, I'm doing a decent job of collaborating with my wife here on, on timing whenever is a good time for me to record the podcast, which is Saturday or Sunday mornings before she wakes up that's the best time to record the podcast. For those of you that are on team, how's the baby doing? Uh, baby's doing great. We are still due in June. So Maddie is very pregnant, but really just absolutely glowing and, and wonderful. And it's just such an exciting experience for us going through that, uh, going through that process of the pregnancy. So um, if you're the person that prays, uh, keep us in your prayers uh, to keep things uh, healthy and and everything well as we welcome our child into the world. But lots of uh, developments going on in our life. But thank you guys for supporting the podcast and for those of you that have been listening along and excited for us. What else is going on in our life? Well... Not too much, not too much. We got we got our good good friend, uh, E, in town this weekend, so uh, we're gonna go go hang out with her and go get some uh, uh, get some food, I imagine, and do some shopping after this is I'm done recording this podcast. So shout out to you, and yeah, just just uh, oh one other anecdote. Uh, my trivia team did win at trivia this week at Tracy, so shout out uh, to my trivia team. Uh, Me, Maddie, and Kelsey just absolutely killed it this week. Uh, So shout out to us for being the smartest people in that bar at that point in time. And that's basically it. Okay. Let's get into the podcast. We have to do our shout-outs. First of all, I want to give a shout-out to John Ott. John Ott is our top-tier supporter on the podcast. Thank you, John, for supporting the podcast. You, too, can be shouted out at the beginning of every single episode of the podcast as a top-tier supporter. If you join John Ott in supporting the podcast on Anchor or Patreon, well, Anchor is now... Spotify for podcasters, if you want to, if you feel so inclined to support the podcast, $10 a month gets you a shout out at the beginning of every single episode, It really helps me out with my production and uh, getting the podcast, I I spend that money on services that are used to help me create generate more reach for the podcast. That is where all that money goes. So if you join john and support the podcast, then you will be helping me grow the podcast and grow our audience. So thank you so much for your support with that john. We are still calling for five-star reviews. I just went on Apple Podcasts, and there are no new five... Well, there are new five-star reviews, but people aren't leaving the written reviews. So if you don't leave the lit written review, I can't read it out on the podcast. I cannot imagine all of the thoughts in your head. So the, the five-star review count is going up on Apple Podcasts, but I cannot do anything about that. I cannot give you a shout-out. If you do not read write a written review. So please make sure to remember to do that. Maybe the podcast a five-star review. And if you know of another place where you can leave a five-star review and you just want to direct me to it, send me the link at my email, daniel at com, and I will read it out on the podcast. Our subscriber count on YouTube is up to 179. Let's see if we can get it one more during this video, get up to 180. But yeah, our immediate goal is obviously 200, but our long-term goal is to hit 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, so we'd be eligible for the YouTube Partner Program, so please consider supporting the podcast in that way if you feel so inclined. And as always, our website is engr-ingsuccess.com, and you can write in to me at Daniel at that website, daniel at engineeringsuccess.com, and I will try to answer your questions with the podcast or if you want to be a guest on the show man this is a long-winded intro i know if you want to be a guest on the show you can also write into me there as well i actually got an email the other day from the host of another prominent engineering podcast probably more much more prominent than mine but they asked if they would they could be a guest on my show and i said yes so keep it tuned i have At this point, I think I have three or four people on the hook for interviews. And it's 100% my fault that I haven't converted and actually got the interviews. But let's be real, guys. I mean, my schedule's crazy. (laughs) So anyways, lots of uh, cool developments going on with the podcast. And I always appreciate your support and sharing. All right. Well, let's get into the podcast. We always start the podcast out with my favorite bit. And I think it's your favorite bit as well. LinkedIn lunatics slash career craziness. So here we go.
1: I interviewed a girl in her bikini the other day. This was over Zoom. She was using her phone and she was trying to hide the fact that she was out in public by using a background effect. I don't care when people interview out in public. I understand that a lot of people might not have a great space to interview in. This girl, though. She was walking around the entire time, giving us only a shaky undershot of her face, mostly chin. She then entered a business which I believe was a Starbucks, and started having a conversation with two different people during her interview. She definitely muted herself to order something and then hit me with sorry can you repeat the question? I kept the interview going as it was more entertaining than anything. She then left and walked for a few minutes before sitting down somewhere. This is when she accidentally panned her camera down revealing she was in a bikini. I'm not saying that she was wearing clothes and I could see that she had a bikini on under it, she was only wearing a bikini. With that being said, I am a millennial and I believe anyone should be allowed to express themselves in any way they want, tattoos, hair color, etc. But I think I have to draw the line at bikini during an interview. I also gathered that she was most likely at the beach as I could hear waves crashing and children playing in the background. She proceeded to then talk about herself saying things like I am incredibly smart and I have a really high IQ and I could go to any school I wanted and lastly I don't need the money for this job, but I would like to ask for $35 an hour things of that nature. She called a week later to see why she did not receive the job. Although this was one of the most entertaining interviews I've ever had, my team agreed that she was not a great fit to be working with children with special needs.
2: And then they edited it to say, came
0: back not expecting all the comments. I appreciate all of you, and I wish I could respond to everyone. With that being said, to all the folks in here who are defending the girl, I'm glad you're fighting the good fight for a better future. But if you really think I was being too harsh, I invite you to attend your next formal interview in the same attire you would wear at the pool or beach. And let me know how that goes. Okay. That... That's a lot. I, I, I... I don't really have too much to say about this one. I just I thought it was too good not <laughs> to put up there. But I, I I do, you know, we we're in an interesting new world, right, where we are doing interviews that typically might have been in person now virtually, and there is a dynamic and like there's a question like, oh, what should I wear for my virtual interview and you know, college fraternity parties around America have already have already taught everybody what you're supposed to wear to a Skype interview with the the Skype interview themed party. But but really, I mean, in general, just for any of you that are thinking, I'd say not what this woman did. So, a quiet environment where you can minimize interruptions, which is not what this woman did. Formal attire from head to I say all your upper body should be pretty well formalized, you don't have to wear a suit but you know just nice clothes from from the chest up and then good lighting if the best lighting you can you can create and and, and again a distraction free background and then generally it is it is important to stay 100 focused on an interview whenever you're in it it's, it's important to minimize your distractions like so there's one thing if somebody comes in and interrupts you and and I remember putting a sign on my door whenever I was interviewing for jobs in college and I had roommates coming in and out of my house and I, I made sure to put a big sign on my door and text all my roommates before I do an interview saying, Hey, please don't run into the house and scream loud things while I'm on my interview. But this person obviously went out of their way to generate more distractions. So and and, and maybe she just forgot about the interview. I mean that, that and that's totally possible. I don't know if, if I were in her position, if I would have still taken it. I think I would have, but I would hey. Sorry, i'm I'm at the beach, but I'm gonna take this interview and I'm and then kind of remove the elephant from the room. But what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't go to Starbucks in the middle of my interview and then mute to go place an order. I mean that this is quite hilarious. and I, my question to you guys is, what is the craziest thing that happened to you, whether you were the interviewer or the interviewee during an interview for a job? What's your craziest interview experience? All right next question
1: sent from my former boss to his staff
0: and here's the picture hello and good day team we will be implementing a fraternization policy due to a public health a safety the policy will be explained more in detail in the upcoming week what the policy policy stands for is to prevent employees Hang out with each other, and then bringing it back to workplace. It prevents favoritism, drama, contagious diseases, diseases, romantic relationships, etc. If you have any questions, feel free to message me directly, and I'll be more than happy to explain in detail. In the meantime, please follow this policy and use this as your notification. You will get be given a contracts. Will you be given contracts to sign? And it is a mandatory policy to follow. Thank you for being incredible and let's have a killer day. Thumbs up emoji, thumbs up emoji. Yeah. I think that it, it, it this, I, I, I say best wishes to this manager and being able to execute this. I think that it's very, and by best wishes, I do not mean that legitimately. I mean that like as sarcastically as possible. But it's hard enough to get your, to do team bonding with your employees. I think it's even hard harder and maybe dumber to just flat out ban them from hanging out with one another now i don't know what kind of job this is i don't know if it's a professional job or if it's just a bunch of high school kids that are really creating a bunch of drama which is which could be the case but you're not going to be able to prevent them from hanging out with one another and making them sign a contract to do so i don't even know if that's legal. so i if i heard this a lot of these people, they say they're going to drop these contracts, these, uh, but, but have you consulted your corporate counsel? (laughs) That's a good question, because maybe they're implementing a policy that's illegal. But yeah, I'd say it's pretty obvious that this person doesn't know what they're doing. And I, I would strongly question the legality of them being able to do this. But Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I'd say I've never experienced such a a policy. Uh, My company has gone out of its way to encourage their employees to bond with one another. When I had a manager that worked out of at one point in time, I had a manager that worked out of state. And whenever they would come into town, we were always encouraged to go out and get dinner or do something together. Because that team bonding that we had with one another would then make us more effective as employees. So I'd say that is a interesting policy. I would say I don't recommend if you're in a situation as a manager trying to implement a similar policy. And and if you're in that situation yourself, I would, you know, peruse your local state's, uh, your state's employment laws. I wouldn't necessarily lawyer up, but say, hey, boss, this is how you become your boss's favorite employee. You say, hey, boss. Actually, maybe not their favorite employee. Maybe they'll retaliate on the youth for this. So uh, your mileage may vary here. But hey, boss, I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but just to protect you, what you just sent out is not legal. And here's here's the here's the thing. Uh, but I, I obviously will not obviously I will not be fraternizing. Um, I know that my my mother works at this company, but I just like you said, I will never see my mother ever again. Um, it's been, it's been 10 years since I saw my mother ever since my job at McDonald's implemented the no fraternization policy. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Next one.
1: Job offer rescinded and blacklisted from a recruiting agency because I had the gall to ask to see the company's employee benefits and for the title of the role to be changed back to the one that was advertised to me. So this person had
0: a job advertised to them at a specific, I guess a recruiter reached out to them and said, hey, here's going to be your title, here's the job. And they asked to make sure that that was their title, and they asked to see what the benefits package would be. And this was their response. I regret to inform you that your offer of employment from Stupid Company has been revoked the entire Stupid Company team and myself were extremely excited to extend the offer to you at the beginning of this week. That said, requests for a change in title, written approvals for extended time off, and overall demeanor on the calls to discuss the offer with myself, Stupid Company employee, and the Stupid Company HR manager have left a poor taste in the stupid team's mouth, and they do not feel comfortable having you on their team at this time. Negotiation during any offer is normal. Having questions about what benefits look like is normal. But the demands for seeing the full benefits, which are private documents of Stupid Company, title changes, and written pre-approval for vacations that will take nine months from now are not. Additionally, once this process is wrapped up, Stupid Recruitment Company has made the decision to discontinue its partnership with you as a potential future candidate and will not be presenting your resume to any of our other clients moving forward. Wow. So sounds like this person was doing them a favor by letting them know that, hey, I was gonna, I'm was i going to take some leave about nine months into my work. So here's a uh, FYI, just making sure that you understand that. And you am wondering what the company is calling full benefits. So if I'm a potential employee looking for a job at a company, the benefits package is a significant portion of the compensation. It is a significant portion. For example, am I going to have to spend $100 a week, $200 a week? $300 a week, $400 a week on insurance, or $0 a week? What does that look like for me? How many days off am I going to get? And what is the process for me getting those days off? Those things, what does my 401k match? What what other perks and benefits do I have for, for leave, like uh, maternity leave, paternity leave? Those things are legitimate things for a potential employee to need to see at a company and I don't need to see the documentation but I need to know exactly what the policies are and just asking for seeing the full benefits which doesn't necessarily mean you need documents is not <laughs> is not is not an unreasonable request it's like saying as this top comment said that what else is private the salary the the benefits are the compensation along with your salary the benefits are the salary? Are you going to say that the job description is proprietary now? Oh my gosh. You have to sign the job offer to find out what's in it, is what somebody commented. Ah, loot box. benefits. it's like, like, here's an imaginary box that you get to open whenever you decide that you're going to work at our company. And that will tell you what your compensation will be. No, your compensation Your compensation includes your benefits. So no, I'm not going to make a decision on whether or not I'm going to work for your company without having a good idea of what the benefit structure is. And the fact that this recruiter does not get that is sad. And the fact that this company does not get that is sad. And guess what? I'm looking at the camera for this one. You're going to struggle to hire people. Or you're going to hire people and they're going to become disgruntled and they're going to be more likely to leave early. So what does that mean? Your turnover rate is going to be higher. So get with the times. I mean, this isn't even getting with the times. This is like not being stupid. So anyways, this is ridiculous. I this one was ridiculous. So if any of you have a similar situation, I hope not. But that's uh, that's crazy. Well, that was this week in LinkedIn lunatics and career craziness. Let's take a quick break and I'll be right back. And we are back. If you were watching on YouTube, I hope you got a nice little song and an advertisement for how you can engage with the podcast. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast provider, I hope you got a lovely little ad. Here we go.
1: What's a good GPA in engineering? I'm doing a bachelor's in electrical engineering at McGill in Montreal. It's my second semester here. And since I came from a high school system that doesn't use nor GPA, nor letter grades, I just wanted to see what counts as a good GPA in my major or what letter grades.
0: That's a good question. I'd say that I'm going to go with the American uh, lettering grade system or the American GPA system and saying that anything above a 3.0 is good. I'd say that 3.0 is the threshold for most companies for hiring grads without having to get other approvals or seeing other miraculous things on their resume and what that translates to is averaging A's and B's in all your classes. So as long as you're making A's and B's on average, then you're going to have above a 3.0. So that's what I'd consider to be a good GPA in engineering. And I'd say that if you have less than that, there you have ways around that. And But for the most part, 3.0 is good. Really good, it's probably like 3.5. Really, really, really good is 3.75. But I mean... That's not necessary. it It also depends on whether or not your school does weighted or just like straight cutoffs, like they do minuses, pluses, but I'd say that just try to make A's and B's, and then you'll end up with a 3.0 or higher, and then you'll be qualified for most jobs. So that's what I'd say. That's what a good GPA is in engineering. But you know what? Not everybody can have a 3.0 in engineering, which brings us to our next question.
1: What to do with 2.7 4 GPA? Hi. I'm 22f, in my last year of college. My GPA by the end would be closer to 3. I'm so disappointed in myself and don't know what to do. My grades are so bad because of chain of health complications and COVID. I had to fly to my home country, third world country, and had problems with internet and abusive family. All this resulted in bad grades. I know no one will be interested of the reasons in the future. I always had this dream to get PhD in a very good university. But I feel like they will automatically reject me now. I was a student in high school. But with fucked up bachelor's degree it doesn't matter right? Or would trying to get another bachelor degree work? What can I do to better my chances? Or should I give up on my dream and focus on finding 9 to 5 job?
0: Yeah, so I what I'd say to this person is I, I wouldn't give up because COVID did create a lot of extenuating circumstances. And you have a very significant extenuating circumstance. You're you, you said that you do not think that people will be interested in the reasons of the future. I think that if you can get your foot in the door, then they will be. So what I'd recommend doing is going ahead. And if you're applying to PhD programs, first of all, get the best GPA you can. If you're applying to GPA programs, uh, P- PhD programs, I'm assuming they're going to have to send have you send a transcript. But you're also going to have to do other things like take the GRE. So study really hard and do really well on your GRE. And then also, um, you're going to have to write uh, your statement of purpose uh, for a lot of PhD programs. In fact, I think all of them. I'm learning this because my wife is going through PhD program applications right now. But you can address that. This is the kind of thing that you can address in your statement of purpose and not, maybe not, or it's somewhere, somewhere in your applications, you can address, uh, how proud of yourself you are for overcoming X, Y, and Z to be able to maintain the G, maintain what you have. You know, I I feel like, I feel like, especially with uh, universities, they're used to doing holistic applications, maybe less so, um, Whenever it comes to graduate schools, maybe they're more cut and dry on that. But again, that's where your GRE score can help you out. And then they say, oh, why did this person have such a great GRE score, but their GPA struggled? Oh, in one of their essays, they talked about how they were in a third world country during COVID and had no access to Internet. And they still managed to pass all their classes. Um, So I, I I wouldn't completely rule it out for you. But let's see what everybody else thinks. Uh, so somebody has depending on the field, but typically, typically lower end grad schools will still require a 3.0 to be admitted. That being said, at this being said, at this point, you could be likely likely be admitted to a lower tier master's program on probation. And then if you excel, you get into a PhD program. Yeah, I, I feel like you, you could go the, the master's first route. But um, and people are saying fix with more education, but I don't know. I mean, maybe if. I would go ahead and maybe apply to both master's programs and PhD programs. But if the money's not right, the money's not right. Right. I I don't recommend just getting more and more degrees and loading up on more and more debt. So if there's a master's program where you can get funding, uh, that would be great. That would be awesome. You should definitely do that. Master's program that you have to spend, go into further debt for to then get into a PhD program where you might, well, engineering, you should be funded at, at least at the PhD level for a fact, but I mean, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't pile up financial obligations because that is just a a burden that is just hard to overcome. But a lot of people are saying go masters, go masters. But this one is good. Oh be honest with yourself if you're ready to actually get a 4.0 in a masters, which is good advice. I I'll say also if you do if you do want to Oh this is not necessarily an engineering um an engineering question i just realized this is just general career guidance but if you do want to go into job applications just leave your your gpa off your resume that's all i'd say but yeah i mean try consider going to get your uh your masters but is is the question that you the question you need to ask yourself is realistically what am what am i going to be able to do with this degree my terminal degree my phd and okay realistically is it also worth me having to spend the money on the masters if i have to spend money on it and spend money on the phd if i have to spend money on it do the do the cost benefit analysis do the research on what percentage of people are able to get funding within your discipline your area of study and and do that research and do that cost benefit analysis for yourself so that that way you're not barking up the the debt tree without a really good source of income waiting for you on the other end. So that's my advice. I again, I my my brain went immediately to engineering because this is an engineering podcast.
2: But uh, anyways, all right. Next question. One second.
1: UT Austin V.S Georgia Tech V.S Berkeley Undergrad Hi everyone, I hope this is not the 8th post like this or seeing today but I needed some advice. I got into UT Austin, Georgia Tech and U.C Berkeley all for mechanical engineering. I'm in state UT Austin and with all the scholarship I have received, I would be pay around 8k per year for UT V.S full price for both GT, 50k, and Berkeley, 70k. GT and Berkeley and super nice universities but I'm trying to gauge what difference it could make in my career for how much more I would be paying. Any thoughts? Also to add some info, I am aiming to work on an entrepreneurial side well through college and work in start UPS during and after college if possible.
0: So trying to work in startups. Here's the thing. I'd say that, uh, let's look at rankings real quick. But I would say that UT Austin, um, Now, first of all, engineering school rankings are not really that valuable. I can't talk and type. Uh, Engineering College University rankings, USA. So I'd say that they don't mean that much. They really don't. But let's look at the U.S. News rankings anyways and see what they say. The best engineering schools are MIT, Stanford, UC Berkeley, Carnegie Mellon, Purdue, University of Texas in Austin, Cockrell, number six, California Institute of Technology, Georgia Institute of Technology, that's Georgia Tech. All right, so UT is ranked higher than Georgia Tech, so based on rankings and prestige and name alone, I would take that over. And then, okay, are you going to spend... $70,000, $60,000 $70,000, $60,000 a year more, or more for four years. $60,000 a that's $240,000 in debt per year. I don't for your degree, $240,000 in
2: debt for a little bit up in the rankings. No,
0: no, you shouldn't do that. Calculate student loan repayment. So here's just a uh Oh, no, I don't want to log in. No. So let's go to bank rate. So, your loan amount is
2: 240,000. That means and your repayment
0: and you're going to pay it off in 20 years. That means you over 20 years will pay $1,500 a month extra and in total you'll pay the average engineer in California's starting salary uh, not even more than the average engineer in California's starting salary in interest. no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just pick UT. Austin. It's a great school. It's a phenomenal school. I wish I had considered it more closely. I mean again. Worked out great for me. My career is phenomenal. I'm glad that I went where I went. I met my wife there. But man, I did not realize that UT Austin school was ranked that. I mean, I, maybe I did part, part somewhere in my head, but it's a great school. Go to UT Austin. It's a no-brainer. Let's see what the comments say. UT Austin, no-brainer. While Berkeley would be the best for startups, I highly encourage you to go to UT Austin. The debt from the other schools will be a serious drag on your ability to accumulate wealth in your 20s. And if you are good, anything you can achieve at Berkeley, you can achieve at UT Austin. I said, unless money is no object, UT Austin is the best choice. It is so much more affordable and a phenomenal program. I bet just about anything that you regret going anywhere besides UT Austin And then here's what i say, after you get your first job again, companies don't care where you got your degree from. So good advice, everybody all around. Thank you guys for agreeing with me in the comments. Very good advice for this person. All right. Here's a question. Did you go and accumulate a lot of debt to go to undergrad for engineering? And did you find it worth it in the comments? Let me know. Let me know. All right. Next question.
1: Should I pursue an ND degree? I'm 16 and in the future I want to start an engineering company. I have been doing a lot of research and most sources say I should pursue an ND degree. Do you think that an ND degree is important to be an engineering entrepreneur or is a bachelor's degree enough? Also around what age do most people finish their ND degrees? Sorry if I don't sound very technical I don't know very much about engineering and engineering degrees at the moment.
0: So so I say that there is a path to getting an NGD or PhD in engineering to starting a company. And that path is, right, you, you do a bunch of research and you have this specialized thing that you develop in your research. And then you sell that thing or you consult over that thing or that service that you provide that you researched with. You got that knowledge. I'd say that you don't need that, though, to be an engineering entrepreneur. I think that most of the people that I talk to that find themselves into engineering entrepreneurship is that they they start working for a company and doing a thing, and then they get really good at that particular thing and realize that there's a market for companies paying for people to just do that service, that thing, and then they branch off, and then they start their own consultancy, and they do that. That's the most common thing that I see, and and you don't need to... You don't need a PhD. You don't need to spend the time or the you lose the opportunity cost of missing out on earning potential and salary growth. Whenever you that is comes with getting a PhD to go ahead and start your own company. So I'd say you don't need it. I'd say that at least not out right out the gate unless you already know what you want to research in but if you're if you if your simple goal is just to start your own company, which is a phenomenal goal and it's great that you're already thinking about whether or not it's a worthy investment for you, so I know that you're you're gonna do great. I'd say that as a starting goal no it doesn't make as much sense, but you never know right you you start working and then you find an in, you start you go to school right for undergrad and then you you're really interested in something well then you do the research in the industry around that thing and you see that there's a there's a, a space for you to have your career. There's a space for you to, to, to create it, carve yourself a, a niche within there. Then, then, you know, then it maybe maybe you get your PhD, but I don't think you need to just have that be your plan out from out the gate. But for some people it is. Um, and just like this person says, your goals may change midway through. You may no longer want to start that company or may no longer find the passion for, you may realize you don't have a passion for a niche thing that's worth starting a company over. Um, but go ahead, get your your bachelor's. And, and as you're going through your bachelor's, I think this answer will become more clear to you. Um, but it's, it's great that you're already thinking about it. And I'd say you don't have to do it, but it's always an option. So yeah, Daniel, Advocating a little bit towards grad school for engineering uh, interesting, interesting, interesting for the for the people that are listening to the podcast, and have heard my previous answers. but hey, this kid's 16, they're still in high school, they're just kind of ideating and thinking about what they want to do with their career. and I'd say it, it it's good to at least keep it on the radar. I have a lot of people that i my, I'd say fifty percent of my graduating class went to grad school after undergrad from engineering
2: and and a lot of them have really good stories to tell for it so all right next question
1: what makes a good engineering school good i'm starting to get accepted and rejected as a transfer ee student and a few schools that are known for their engineering accepted me and a few schools i like but not necessarily known for their engineering also accepted me My question is, what does it even mean to go to a good engineering school compared to one not as good? I feel like the rankings are so arbitrary and made up. Sometimes I would like more concrete info from those that have gone to both types of schools. Is it access to better professors, projects, or internships? Access to a stronger alumni network? Looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say.
0: So I'd say D, all of the above. I think that what makes a good engineering school good is, yeah, the the access to the rankings will talk about like the research the professors are doing, but just because the schools ranked high for the professors doesn't necessarily mean that their professors are good teachers. Um it might just mean that their research is really good and maybe they're doing their research well with grad students. You don't know. Um projects, yeah, I think that really good um good engineering schools have relationships with industry that allow their students to pursue cool projects that are connected to companies, maybe as part of their design, maybe senior design or design projects. And yes uh what what something that makes a university very good is access to internships and a strong alumni network that relates to jobs and all those things are tied in with one another i think that that's what makes a good engineering school really good and and that's what you should look at is now not necessarily how they're ranked in those things but what you get from having conversations with people that have either gone to that university or people that work for the university that tell you about the resources and the placement opportunities cuz really what matters to you and what matters to should matter to everyone whenever they're evaluating engineering school is what does this do for me long term? So that means can I get a job in the industry that I want to work in where I can make good money and not be saddled by massive debt that that should really be your calculus. That should be your math. So reach out to the university. If you have an idea of what kind of companies and industries you want to work for, say, hey, do you have people that work for X, Y, Z? Do you have people that work for X, Y, Z? How do I get a job there? What kind of internship placements are people getting in that industry? And then and then, if they're able to get people to work in the industry that you want to work in generally, then and you can afford it, then that's how you pick. So, But that's what I'd say what makes a good engineering school good. Let's read the comments and see what they say. uh assuming it's in the u.s a accreditation is important well that's a no that's a non-starter for me yes it has to have a bit accreditation to even be considered to be good um and resources so yeah i i guess so yeah funding for your projects that kind of stuff um yeah so there's one that i didn't really talk about right so um a really good engineering school has good funding for their school project club so like a good example of that is how good is their fsae program for example like how 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 well funded is their formula one or their e-car or their i don't know concrete boat i don't know if that's a design class or just a a project but yeah that they some of the really good schools will have funding so it'll be more attainable for you to to participate in those things and have that on your resume but that's another thing that makes a good engineering school good so thank you to the comments for making that no all right well I'm going to take another quick breather that was our college advice section we will come right back with career advice All right, and we're back. Hopefully you also got an ad there. If not, then you would have just got some outro music and some intro music, and now you hear my voice. All right, next question.
1: The question is... What do you think of a work environment where a lot of people send emails without taking care of how it looks, aesthetically and grammatically? In my department, sales, my bosses do that frequently. As a young professional, I find it difficult for me to learn good practices.
0: That's a good question. So I think it depends. I think if I was in a work environment where client-facing emails, like formal client-facing emails, formal communications, and that kind of stuff are not formatted well, then it could be bad. But I I think it should the the formatting and the care to an email should reflect the level of importance in associated with the email. So, uh, so whenever I write an email to, for example, if I'm writing an email to give an opinion to my project director that has two minutes tops to make a decision based on my email, I'm going to spend a lot of time on my end to make sure that that way I can use as little of their time as possible in my email. And that, and that's why I'm, they have only so much time to dedicate to my thing So I'm going to do everything in my power to not waste their time. And so that's what kind of, maybe that's how you're, you're feeling you're in sales. You're, you're trying to get these emails really formatted and help the other person make a really quick decision. And just because you spend a lot of time doesn't mean the email's long, right? But, and so maybe that's what you're doing is you're spending more time to consolidate your emails. And that's what I do. I, I'll spend, depending on the email, I'll spend a bunch of time making sure that I'm being as concise and clear as possible. And if your bosses aren't doing it, that's probably because they just don't have the time for it. And maybe they're doing it on their phone or it's maybe just not as important to them. And I understand that it's it's difficult for you to learn good practices, but consider consistently doing what you need to do to help them make their decisions. I mean, maybe your email is just so well formatted that they're able to give a quick yes, no right back to you. And that, that I think I feel like that's a, a point of success for you. So Um, let's read what the comments have to say. This person said, I used to spend 10 minutes writing each email, making sure it sounded nice and professional. Now I just put together barely coherent bullet points and throw them into chat GPT. Okay, whatever. Um, with my direct team, I'm not going through the time and effort to ensure 100% accuracy. Yes. Because whenever you're communicating with your direct team, they have the context, right? So you don't need to spell out everything to the extent that you might need to. So when I'm emailing emailing my boss, my, my, my manager, It's kind of like, it's kind of conversational, right? Back and forth with them. But if I'm doing something outside of my immediate realm, then that's where the formality and that kind of stuff comes into play. So it kind of just depends. It depends on the context. So sometimes I just don't have the time and I need to get a response out to somebody and, and that, that works. And other times I need to make a formal email. So I'd say, as this person said, they started, but they probably started making them all grammatically correct and pretty. And after decades working there, they stopped caring. And if the higher ups don't care, then the rest follows. Blah blah blah. Okay, I don't say that that means that you necessarily don't want to stay too long in that job. Um, what I would say is, it just again, what you're seeing is it depends, right? It depends on the context. And I'm I assure you that if they're trying to help their boss make a decision very quickly with an email it's formatted properly and they took the time to write it. It just it just kind of depends on the context. So I would not read into it too much, seriously. Uh, it, I think that you're just in their realm of context that is, the con- that is the group of people that doesn't get the super formatted email, but I can assure you that they know how to write an email. And if they don't, then, well, then I'm wrong. All right, next question.
1: P.E. License or Masters, Mechanical Engineering. Hello all. I am pursuing a bachelor's in mechanical engineering with absolutely no clue what concentration I would like to work in, I've thought about manufacturing, but I'm not sure. I heard that getting your P.E. license was in demand slash highly recommended at least in the U.S. where I live. However, at my university they offer a 4 plus 1 where I can get my BS and my MS in 5 years. I have not much interest in doing that program except I kind of feel societal pressure slash FOMO. I don't know if I'd regret not doing my master's degree. Even if I were to, I don't even know what I would like to specialize in. I feel like it's silly to do both a master's and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. So my plan was to start studying for the FE exam during my junior year and take it my senior year. Then go into industry and do all the other pre for getting a PE and then just doing that exam and voila. A competitive employee, obviously I know it would be hard work. I also know some companies will sponsor someone's higher education in order to promote them in the company. Can someone please give advice slash insight on either what they personally experienced or what they've seen in regards to others?
0: So I, I like your plan. I really like your plan. I, I think that, that you should avoid succumbing to the FOMO because that, I think that's what it is. And, and if you don't know what you want to specialize in for a master's, then there's no point in specializing. In that one year that you're spending on the master's, that's a year that you could be earning money. So I'd say unless you, um, unless you know exactly what you want to specialize in and you know that there's a, a niche there for employment and, and you're going to make a lot more money with that master's, then don't do it. It sounds like your university is doing a really good job. At a sales pitch and trying to get more money out of their undergraduate students by getting them to stay one more year and giving them a master's. That that's what it sounds like. So I'd say you you had some questions in there. You think that some companies will sponsor somebody's higher education in order to promote them? Yes, that's an option. That that is 100 an option if you if you realize that you your company wants you to specialize in something. For sure, I, I'd say there are some companies like example, I know Intel that came, came to my school's career fair and said that you had to have a master's to work for them. But I don't even know if that's true, but yeah, for the most part, you're going to be fine getting it. I mean, the undergraduate mechanical engineering degree is a very versatile degree. It's very valuable, very employable. You don't need the master's to get a job for sure. You don't need it at all. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, and you could get a PE license either way. Um, with or without a master's, so. But uh, last last bit of your your point is is taking the FE exam. Yeah, uh, one hundred percent study for the FE exam and take it your senior year if you can, or take it right after you graduate, depending on what your state's requirements are. And then review your state's requirements on when you can take your PE exam. Prep for that, take that, and that'll that'll obviously that'll really look great for you. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if in Texas you can take the the FE while you're still in school. Maybe you can. And I, I'd say yeah, study for it your junior year. You really you really shouldn't have to study for it that much. It I've heard it's gotten a little more difficult, but it was it was very easy when I took it. I studied for maybe a month haphazardly. And then I passed it. And honestly, I spent too much time studying for it. So it's not a big grind, really. It's not a big grind. You should, but taking it while the material and your coursework and all that kind of stuff is fresh in your brain. Good idea. Really, really good idea. But yeah, I'd say don't get the master's unless you know exactly what you want to get the master's in and don't succumb to that FOMO. Uh, It sounds like your university is just trying to get more money out of you. And uh, in general, master's should be free. Uh, for engineering, you shouldn't have to pay for a master's in engineering, anyways. So, um yeah, just get, go get a job. That's. I think you have a really good plan, and keep on moving. So, good question. I hope you do well and you stick to your plan. And I wish you the best of luck. All right, next question.
1: Job told me to leave after I put in my notice. I have been with this company for seven years, and things have gone downhill with upper management. I recently graduated college and have been looking for a position in my field. Their lack of safety was the final straw and I submitted a 30-day notice, in a professional tone. My direct supervisor calls me in towards the end of the day apologizes and said his boss called him and told him they accept my resignation and no notice is necessary that today was my last date. Did I do something wrong? I feel like I was being fair and giving them more than enough notice
0: yeah I don't think you did anything wrong here. I think that your boss might have done something wrong though if I remember that episode from the office correctly um after somebody resigns if 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 you then terminate them then uh then that kind of changes things so uh file for unemployment um you should be paid on unemployment or you should be paid for your time that you're you would have been working that 30 days. Um, make sure you get paid for your vacation time. Make sure that you get paid for any leave. That is, um, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's at will employment and most, if it's in the U S it's at will employment, but man, that's, uh, that that's cruel of them. And th- these people are normalizing it, normalizing it, normalizing it, normalizing it, normalizing it, normalizing it. If safety is an issue for the sake of your coworkers, report to OSHA. Yeah, you're not obligated to them anymore. Go ahead and do that. Good idea. Uh this was an FU. They wanted to show you that you're replaceable. Lesson learned, don't give a notice. No pay. All right. They said they're not going to pay you? All right. A file for unemployment. They'll be paying for that or it'll come out of I don't I don't know how unemployment works. I'm not knowledgeable. How who
2: pays for unemployment? Does the company pay? Does company contribute to unemployment?
0: Unemployment is almost entirely funded by the employers. So an unemployment claim does cost the employer, and document, 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 get these things in writing, maybe send them an email afterwards saying, hey, uh, as stated, I, fi- I gave you a 30-day notice saying that my last day would be X per this call. You told me that I would not be able to return to work and that my last day was X, was Y. Therefore, um, please confirm this uh, via email. Otherwise, I will see you on Monday. And (laughs) because that, I mean, so do whatever you can to get unemployment because some companies will try to weasel out of that. And that's just uh, not cool of them. So make sure you get unemployment. And I mean, you sound like you're doing them a favor by giving them a long notice, but goodness, that that is cruel on their part. And lesson learned. make sure you have something else lined up whenever you quit. And if you have another job lined up already, then maybe reach out to them and say, Hey, guess what? I am available to start working today. Uh, Cause my, my former company, which, you know, that I don't want to be with them anymore. Cause I took a job with you. Uh, they, they, after I gave them notice, they terminated me. So, or, or don't volunteer that up to you. That is. Interesting. All right next question
1: for the love of all that is holy please stop putting jobs up as entry level and then ask for three to five years of experience entry-level game design job oops sorry but you need five years of aaa experience to work for our small indie company for twenty dollars an hour it's the bare minimum i can't believe you don't have that experience yet even though you didn't even graduate college yet kids these days very frustrating bloated searches I still apply. LOL.
2: Yeah, these these companies are just going to
0: be shooting themselves in the foot with that. Re- really, I mean, I've heard examples of people seeing people that invented different coding languages or softwares or stuff like that, and then job <laughs> get posted where you need X Y Z years of experience, and even the person who created it doesn't have that many years of experience. So, uh, likely, this is just somebody that works in HR and doesn't have that technical experience or it doesn't have the knowledge base around that to know that that's really required or maybe the company sucks and in that case I mean just go ahead and apply and then if if they uh if they realize that they're not getting any hits because it's not possible to get that many years of experience for somebody for an entry-level role then there you then there you go they're they're, they're gonna they're gonna course correct but uh i wonder if this is the company using that as an excuse to try to offer entry-level pay but expect more than entry-level product probably the case probably the case um let's go into the comments real quick thanks to these types of listings this tweet lives rent-free in my head i saw a job post the other day it required four plus years of experience in fast api I couldn't apply as I only have 1.5 years of experience since I created that thing. It's absurd that it's pretty much the standard now. Fresh graduates are expected to somehow have five years of professional work experience and an endless portfolio of projects for entry-level garbage paid position. Yeah, those companies just happen to not be the companies that you want to work for, right? But, I mean, you you apply and then you, you realize you kind of learn more throughout the process, right? Hey, you know, maybe they prefer somebody with that many years experience, but they realize that that's not possible. That's maybe the, the best case outcome. But I mean, I think I actually went to my company's website and this is actually pretty cool. Our entry level jobs say this, and I'm proud of my company for doing this. And again, this podcast is my own thing. I do not speak, for my employer, but I am proud of this. So I will show it off real quick. If you go to one of our entry-level jobs,
2: let's see, let, let me, let me get, let me be wrong real quick. But if you look at one of our entry-level jobs, let me get a miracle. Professional. So, if you find
0: one of our entry level jobs, come on.
2: All right. Here he is. That's not one. Oh, no. Here it is. All right, here it is. Um, if you go to this role, you'll see that
0: one to three year, but preferred work qualifications, but not required because it's an entry-level role, one to three years of field experience. And and then that gets replaced by your engineering degree. So that's kind of cool. So hey, if you want to come work with me out in New Orleans and you're looking for an entry-level engineering job, check out this, this job right here, construction craft rep. Really cool job. You get to learn a lot. So, all right, next question. So we had a person that gave notice and then was terminated. And now we have this person that's trying to figure out when to give notice.
1: When to tell company I accepted another offer. Currently working for a very small firm and recently got a good offer, more dollar and remote from an old employer that I accepted. The only thing is that the start date is in June, more than two months away. My current company has plans to pay for some trainings and networking events for me. These trainings are expensive and relevant to projects I'll start working on in June slash July. My concern is that waiting until two weeks will not give them enough time to find a replacement and will burn bridges. Should I give a three to four week notice? Should I opt out of these trainings? For reference, I'm an EIT with two years of experience. Edit. Thanks everyone for the thoughtful replies. I think most people are right with two weeks. It's standard and the company will be just fine. I'll also opt out of the training and try to get another EIT to attend, since they'll likely need the training for these upcoming projects.
0: Yeah, I, what I'd say is that's really good advice. I think that giving longer than two weeks notice is actually going to put the company in a more difficult position. Um 'Cause because then they have to deal with like, okay, this person's gonna be here for the next two months and then they're gonna leave. And so what do we do? Um, but yeah, just be a really good employee, right? So give your two weeks notice, um, but also be do a really good job of training the next person, you know, that to 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 that's gonna be taking over these responsibilities. Make sure that you're doing a really good job with handover documentation, for example. Like, Make sure that y'all's your, your, your knowledge is very organized. Make sure that all the people that are involved in the project are copied on all communications. Make sure that if there's a gap in understanding of one of your teammates with how to do things, that you're helping them get that gap of understanding. Just be a really good teammate. And then when it comes to the trainings, I mean, I don't know. If it's not a red flag for you to skip them, then then skip them if it's a major red flag for you to skip them then uh i don't know up to up to you uh, I, but but definitely encourage that other people can participate in them as well but yeah i think if you give longer than two weeks notice it's going to put the company in a really difficult position uh much more difficult position than if you just don't give them the notice at all because then they have to start thinking about planning foreign events. But this person said, keep your mouth shut until two to three weeks out. After 20 years in the industry, I've watched this play out many times. And most of the time, advance notice was given. The company cut them after two weeks and sometimes immediately and left employee with a gap in paychecks. Must be a U.S. thing. Yeah. I. What I'd say is just stick with the two weeks notice because and just be again just be a really good teammate because it 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 might not work out well for you and realistically could you go 2 months without pay or 2 months on an unemployment that's a question so but yeah just stick with the 2 weeks that's professional it's very professional it's expected and uh, i think it'll be appreciated so
2: here we go next question
1: I run part of my husband's business, should I put that on my resume? My husband is a self-employed artist. I run a lot of his business. I take care of wholesaling orders, packing his orders, maintain inventory, do design work for him, help schedule tours etc. Normally, I would put this on a resume but I'm hesitant to as I took his last name, which is a very unique name and would be obvious that we were, at least in some way, related. What should I do here? Leave it off entirely or just expect that it's going to be a red flag or at least prompt questions.
0: Yeah, so I would I would 100% put it on the resume. And yeah, I think that a lot of anybody that knows what it's like to run a business or their own. But I mean, this, this is your husband's family business, right? So anybody that knows what it's like to run a business knows that there's a lot of things that go into running a business and 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 all the things that you do and in, in your experience are very valuable experience i mean it, it basically you, you run all of the his entire back office it sounds like he sounds like he does the creative business and, and you kind of do the whole back office for him so that's very valuable skills and i think that it would be perfectly it would i think it would actually spark a really fun story and a very fun conversation and they could ask you i mean not a nepotism thing at all i think they're gonna ask you well so so this is your husband's business, right? And so, and you're like, yeah. And so what do you do? And you just explain like So you basically run his whole business for him. And they say yes. And you say you say yes. And then they're like, wow, that's that's phenomenal. You you have a lot of knowledge on what it takes to run a business. Uh, you you might be a great employee. So, 10000 percent yes. It's part of your work history and very legitimate. And you can even put yes, COO of his name LLC, or sole proprietor. Yeah, COO is extreme title inflation. You don't have a C-suite or a board. Um, but give yourself a sweet title. Don't inflate your styles, titles too much. But um, you know, being a COO or president of a sole-slash-dual proprietorship can undermine your credibility by seeming purposely inflated. Um, You could just do, like, director of operations or operations... You don't even have to give yourself a title, honestly. Just uh, You could just title it operations or uh, backhouse or... You um, wholesale orders, you pack orders, maintain inventory, design work for him, help schedule tours. I mean, you're kind of like an operations manager, uh, is what I'd say. Um, and that's why you said C, chief operating officer, COO. Yeah, but I would just say operations or something like that. But... Um. But yeah, that's uh, congratulations on your promotion to shipping and delivery manager slash tour coordinator. Uh, sounds like he's got a silent partner it's you. Definitely including your resume. Running a business is hard. Yes, it's great that he does his art. Without you, he's just an artist doing art stuff. Um, if you put COO as your title, it kind of. Yeah, lends to certain things. Operation Man- You said, I feel like Operations Manager fits the bill. Okay, you and I are on the same page. Okay, cool. Yeah, Operations Manager is a great title for it. Uh, 100% agree. Yeah, 100% put this on your resume. 100% put this on your resume. All right. Next
2: question.
1: Is it possible to start a structural firm straight out of college? I'm a civil engineering student going into senior year of college. One of my biggest goals in life is to start a structural firm. I am fully aware that you at the very least need a PE and an SC in the state of California to even consider branching out on your own. I also know that a lot of civils don't like to do work on their own because of the insurance liability. However, I worked with the owner of a land surveying company while I was still in high school and he was pushing me to get my PE in surveying and start my own company. I was too stupid to see how big of an opportunity that was at the time. He has since passed away. I am currently interning in geotech structural engineering and learning a lot. Would I be naive in asking if there are any p.e.s out there willing to partner and mentor someone with little experience but has the ambition to do anything required to learn and build? How would I network to find someone like this? And what skills and programs would be essential to learn?
0: I'd say you're a little naive because you're not going to be able to start the company straight out of college, just regardless. What I'd say instead is if you, if you see the industry and you're seeing that there are opportunities in there where people are able to be consultants, what I'd say is, is you, you work for the companies that are doing that get the experience, and then once you have the experience, then you branch off and you start your own consulting firm or you keep your job and then you do your consulting on the side. And then eventually, once your consulting money catches up to your job money, then you then you start your own company. I would say it would be very naive to just try to start your own company, get somebody to work for you, and then teach you. That, that wouldn't happen. Um, you might find an individual consultant that's trying to expand his business and maybe work for them or her business, his or her, business if you found a really cool consultant that could take you under your wing and and teach you as their one employee um it might be difficult though uh to get the same kind of benefits you get working for a larger company and the same career growth but you never know but yeah let's see if everybody agrees with me very naive unless it's your dad especially in geotech expect to think that you're useless with five to nine experiences Owner of the firm I used to work at started his own at four years of experience, and that's already very impressive in my eye. There's no way you can start your by yourself right out of college. You don't know stuff right out of college. The hell is S-C to begin with. He meant S-E. Yeah, y- okay, here's what somebody said. You can start any business for anything at any time, but do you have the cash to float the wages of a P.E. and other qualified staff until the payments for their work start flowing in? Chicken and... Chicken and egg, catch 22 scenario. Can't do the work until you get the team. Can't get the work until you convince customers that you can do it. Can't get the team until you have the right work for them to do. Have to bridge all these issues with cash. Yeah. So yeah, here's what I'd say. Work for, work for a smaller firm or a larger firm, get the experience. Maybe if you want to start your own business, maybe find a a more local, smaller firm where you get to do more different things in the business where you're less specialized. That's what I'd say. But yeah, I, it's not. I don't think it's. It would be very difficult to start a company by yourself right out of school, but unless you have this patent or this design or this thing, and then you're implementing your thing as your business, but a general consultancy, no, you're not going to be able to do it. But, uh, but eventually you could have a consultancy. Just don't try to rush things. I know people say, well, you make more money when you run your own business and you're in your own, you're own, you are your own boss, but. Life doesn't necessarily always move that fast. And if you wanted to run your own business, uh, maybe you would have done it in a different, and you wanted to do it quicker, you might have chosen a different industry and a different profession to do it in. But you chose engineering. And engineering consultants have experience. And fresh out of school, you do not. So I wish you the best advice, Uh, best of luck. Gosh, I am all over the place today. I wish you the best of luck. But yeah, I'd say very difficult to start a structural engineering firm. Straight out of school. All right. Two more questions, people. Two more questions, and then we're done. All right. Here we go.
1: F, 28 application engineer salary don't feel adequate. Hello, all my fellow women engineers. I feel like I'm not being paid right. I'm only making sixty eight k. That's $33 per hour. I feel like I could be doing way more. I'm not greedy. I just feel like, as a 28-year-old, I should be at 100k. Thoughts and advice.
0: Yeah. So a little more context: this person's background. They sounds like they're an entry-level engineer with about one year of experience, and they have some part-time and internship work along the way. So it sounds like they maybe were a non-traditional student or they graduated late, um, and they didn't include their experience or their education or Anything like that, so I'd say sixty eight k even for entry level is maybe i'd say it's just about right to be honest. <laughs> I'd say that no I, I, maybe you don't feel like the salary is adequate, but if you only have one year of experience, then then that i mean that's that's about right if you're starting maybe maybe go for eighty a little higher maybe, but one year of experience uh, six figures. It depends on where you are. Maybe some people, maybe some people could do that, but I wouldn't say that that's the norm or the expectation. So I, I think that your, 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 your compensation is much more closely tied to your experience than it is to your age. I think that, um, and, and honestly, 68K is a, is a good salary for a human being so I'd be proud of yourself that you're able to get the necessary education and experience to earn that and you're working as an application engineer and hopefully uh, you'll be able to continue your career growth but maybe you're a little bit behind on your career progression um, than the traditional college student but yeah yeah maybe you can make a little bit more but it's, it just it that's that's life. Um, somebody said, "I'm also in your field." While I understand the sentiment, I feel like I should be making more because I'm 28 and want to. Is not a good reason to make more money. It looks like you're about two years of experience, and it takes more than four more like four to five years in this field to hit six figures. You could also try job hopping to get some quicker salary boost. But with but with only one year of experience in your current role, I'd recommend sitting put another year before really going for that. Being in the Midwest could also hypothetically put you at a disadvantage. Yes, the Midwest is more affordable to live in. Have you thought about moving closer to a biotech hub where your skills may be in higher demand and pay more? My biggest salary jumps were made by relocating. Once for my then employer, a second time for a very promising manager level role that turned out to be smoke and mirrors, and a third time for my current position in a very stable company. Yeah, Chicago is uh, a biotech hub. Uh, I'd say, but yeah, I think that it's experience. I don't think the internship experience really counts towards those years of experience. I, I don't really look at it like that. I'm at the point where I'm actually considering taking my internships off my resume. In fact, I probably will. Um, I probably will take it off my resume pretty
2: soon. So, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, uh, I just, I'd say that,
0: I know you're not greedy. Everybody wants to make more money. That's a legitimate thing. Legitimate want, a legitimate desire. But it sounds like you just don't have the the requisite experience to make that kind of money. And honestly, I don't know if you really want the responsibilities associated with that. Uh, It comes with extra responsibilities if you're taking a new role. So I wish you the best of luck. Last
1: question just landed my first white-collar job. Any advice? So I just landed a job in design drafting, I start four-thirds. I'm 35 and decided to go back to school during the pandemic. I've been a blue-collar worker my entire life but kind of got tired of it and wanted a change of pace. And I'm pretty nervous about it. When I went to my interview I was honestly smitten by how nice everyone was to me when I was given a tour of the office and I'm actually super excited about the opportunities I'm about to be awarded and the fact that I won't have to be on my feet all day anymore. Not to mention, I'm gonna love doing CAD slash design work all day. The thing is, half of my current co-workers are telling me how much I'm going to love it and the other half are saying the opposite. I'm kind of chalking up the one saying the opposite as the common hatred that blue-collar workers have for white-collar workers but I'm not sure any suggestions or tips on moving into a different work environment.
2: So
0: what I'd say is that do your best to learn the corporate culture and the work norms in your new environment. And, Cause it, it's just going to be different. The way, the way that people talk to one, one another is different. The way that drama occurs is different. It's a little bit more silent. Um, the way that people are maneuvering for their careers, it might be a little bit more strategic. People are just generally more strategic in general, uh, about that kind of thing. I don't know. It's like a, it's kind of like a game that people play in the white color, uh, workforce, but it's just going to be a little bit different. And I feel like that your, your blue color background might actually be more of a breath of fresh air to people in that environment. So within reason, be yourself. Um, But so some some things that will come out of this, I don't you having worked physical jobs and having worked um, like blue collar jobs and having worked a white collar job. Whenever I would leave work from my blue collar job, I'd go home and I'd be physically exhausted, but I want to spend time talking to friends and and I'd, I'd be able to have a lot of really good social interactions with people. Um, but now I'm, I'm still pretty social, but it's a little bit harder, right? I'm, I'm mentally more spent at the end of days. While I'm, while I might not be physically spent, um, I am definitely more mentally spent at the end of the day. And uh, when I worked my blue collar job, I mean, I I clocked in, I clocked out, I was done. I was in, out, done. No more work. White collar, my, I mean, again, I try to have really good work life balance, and I feel like I have decent work life balance for somebody working in the role that I work in, but. I mean, the work just follows you home a little bit, a little bit more. So doing your best to understand what those boundaries are like for you and making sure that you're setting boundaries is a is a really good thing to do whenever you're uh, transitioning into the white collar workforce. And 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 when people try to push those boundaries, you know, try your best to resist and, and kind of push back on that kind of thing. So you can kind of maintain that semblance of balance in your career. So let's see what everybody else said. Uh, the, sh- the thing that shocked me from going from minimum wage jobs, service jobs to white collar was the unspoken norms and like social things. When I worked at Target or a hair salon, if somebody did something dumb, we just called it out, had a quick argument and then moved on. Most white collar places I've worked at, you have to be more, I don't know, passive, forgiving and very tactful. This is the game that I was talking about. When I first made the switch, I was super blunt and loud because that's what I was used to. White collar workers don't like that. Um... There's like a code switch is what people say. So on the hiring side, I've seen people have a really hard time grasping that management and employees are part of a team for the most part. I've seen people who obviously rehearse telling off their manager in a way that works in a blue collar world and gets people quiet fired in the white collar world. I've also seen people who seem to think that managers who delegate tasks to them are just being lazy. The reason employees are hired is because the manager's job is complicated enough to justify a team. That's why... Why don't you just do it? Attitude is pervasive among people who are making this transition. I will say that if you can do this, it's hard. It will serve you well. And if you have children, their opportunities in the white collar world will increase dramatically. Yeah. So I think that, I think that once again, generally your, your bluntness, I think will be received as a breath of fresh air, but there is that level of tactness that comes along with working in white collar. Um, and again, I work in construction, right? So I, I work with people that are blue color background all the time, and that 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 intermeshing and the intermingling of white color, blue color, it's why you can't in my company you can't advance anywhere without working in the field and working with the blue color people. And it's honestly working out in the field has been a really blessing for me and a breath. Again, a breath of fresh air. It's been it's been really good, and we get a lot of stuff done. And I, I can value and appreciate those people's backgrounds. Other people may struggle with it more than I have, and and you're gonna have to realize that you kind of have to read the room with the people that you're interacting with, and kind of see how what kind of what kind of person they are and what kind of interactions they prefer. But it's like a again, it is a game. Uh, main advice would be to have a lot of tact office politics are the worst part of office jobs. Just try to keep yourself out of drama. Keep yourself out of drama. Uh, So yeah, seriously, I mean, the fact that you're excited about it, you're gonna do great. Um, Congratulations to you. I hope that is a a wonderful transition for you. And doing drafting work is, uh, it's a really cool job. You You get to apply things that maybe you learned out in the field. Uh, and collaborate with the engineers, uh, you're going to have a lot of engineers, you're going to be you have the opportunity to be very collaborative. So maintain those relationships that use that tact. And uh, I think you're going to find it to be a really good growth opportunity for yourself and also uh, provide opportunities for significant increased earning potential for you as well. So congratulations. I think you're going to enjoy it. I wish you the best of luck. All right, everybody. Well, that has been this episode of the engineering success podcast. As I mentioned, book is on the way. We're working on it. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while, but I'm hoping that eventually it will result in a lot more people listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends. You can share our website on www.engringsuccess.com. You can share our YouTube. at The links are all in the show notes. We have blog posts that go out regularly, so you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website. And again, I really appreciate your reviews. I appreciate those that choose to support the podcast financially. However you support the podcast, I really appreciate you, and I'll catch you. And the next one,
2: I'm miscommunicating. I just made a pilot, then they threw me on the stations. No, I'm not complaining, no, I'm not complaining. My thoughts get complicated, I cannot explain the lameness. Never losing focus because I ain't chasing payments. Still playing in the basin while I'm working on arrangements. They heard the kid in 50 countries, thank God that's amazing. But I'd rather think Spotify they put me on the station.